I've heard the word burnout more in the past two years than I ever did prior. The same may be true for you. But what is burnout really? And how can leaders work to reduce it? On this episode, how to address it and where to begin. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 561. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I'm not sure about you, but I have heard the word burnout over the last year and a half, two years, probably more than I ever have, both professionally and personally. It's always an issue, of course, in our work and in our lives, but particularly these last few years as we've navigated the pandemic, so many conversations have now begun with this topic of burnout and how we as individuals can do better, but more importantly for us, how we as leaders can do a better job of reducing burnout in our organizations and with our teams. I'm so glad to welcome today an expert that's going to help us to really look at burnout in a new way, but also perhaps more importantly, what we can do practically to begin to reduce it a bit in our organizations. I'm pleased to introduce to you Jennifer Moss. She is an award-winning journalist, author, and international public speaker. She's a nationally syndicated radio columnist reporting on topics related to happiness and workplace well-being. She's also a freelance writer whose articles have appeared in HuffPost, Forbes, the Society for Human Resource Management, Fortune, and Harvard Business Review. Her book, Unlocking Happiness at Work, received the Distinguished UK Business Book of the Year Award. She also sits on the Global Happiness Council. She is the author of The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress, and How We Can Fix It. Jennifer, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so looking forward to our conversation, Dave. We should probably start with the obvious question of what is burnout, because it's a word that I think a lot of us use in casual conversation a lot to describe many things. But I'm curious what, when you do the research and really look at this word, what does it mean? You know, I'm glad that you mentioned that we use that word sort of loosely. And I think part of the reason why it hasn't been taken seriously so long is that we do use it in all these different contexts. But you know, what I was really thrilled about in 2019 was the World Health Organization identified burnout as an occupational phenomena. It's workplace stress left unmanaged, identified by three major signs, which is disengagement or emotional distance from one's job, uh, a sense of being disconnected from work. We also see that in exhaustion. If we're extremely exhausted and depleted every day, then that's a sign that we're burning out. And then through cynicism, that sense of hopelessness that sense of not having control over the controllables. So these three major signs are identified, but the workplace definition really helped us researchers to create some accountability around the workplace and organizations to make it a we problem to solve and not just um, put on individuals to solve themselves. When I think about some of those factors that you just mentioned that is true for burnout, and when I hear those in conversation, in with friends and family and inside organizations, the the traditional thinking and even advice is, well, you probably need some time away from work. You need to do a better job exercising, eating well, uh, take some vacation days, do the self-care kind of things. And a lot of us have that direction for ourselves when we feel that level of burnout. And yet, one of the things that 
came up for me in looking at your research is that self-care doesn't really cure burnout, does it? No. And it's interesting because we, you know, when I mention this, you know, I get this pushback. Well, we still need to have self-care. We need to model self-care. We need to take care of ourselves. And I completely agree with that. I think we still need to have psychological fitness and social emotional intelligence and make sure that we're taking downtime. That's good for our, you know, life satisfaction, longevity, all of those benefits. So yes, that's a part of just, you know, showing up to work in a healthy way, but you can do all of that work. And if you go into an organization that has really poor corporate hygiene, you know, they're, they're failing at supporting your mental health. They're overworking you. You, you know, you're dealing with issues of systemic discrimination or lack of fairness or lack of community. You know, all those things are going to make all the work that you put into self-care not be realized. And so that's where we have to come together. We need to do work on ourselves as individuals for all different kinds of reasons, but the workplace needs to make sure that it's not detracting from the efforts we're putting in to um, improving our well-being and mental health. I was so glad that there's a chapter in the book on how to lead more effectively and to address burnout. And the thing that was interesting is as I got into that chapter, the word curiosity comes up a lot. In fact, the direction for leaders is really around, a big part of it is around curiosity. And you make the point that curiosity increases empathy. What does empathy have to do with burnout? Yeah, and really, I think it's an absolute critical skill for for leaders, you know, leaders today, but especially leaders in the future of work, because this last 20 months has shown people that there's more in, you know to work and life than just exhaustion and depletion and working to the point where it's sucking the life out of us and you know so we've de- we're demanding more employees are in more control they have more power it's become uh, an issue of attrition for leaders and so if leaders really want to create the right approach to solving for burnout it's going to have to get down to really designing programs that are not in the image of ourselves with our bias and our expectation our history and legacy but actually creating you know change and intentional mental health supports and well-being programs that are in the image of other people and the people we're serving to do that requires a deep capacity for active listening. It means asking questions of people. It means being curious about really what matters to people, what motivates, and also what um, harms people's um, sense of purpose and inspiration. And the only way that you can do that is with that that social emotional intelligence strain of empathy. You know, what I loved in the in the research was I found that in the, and it, this is in the military guidebook specific to the US, but we've seen this in other military sort of leadership guidebooks in, in other countries. But the second tenant behind warrior ethos, particularly in the in the U.S. Army, is empathy. And so when we talk about this as a soft skill, I get so frustrated because in the dictionary, the definition of soft is soft margarine. And the thing with empathy as a leadership skill, it is extremely difficult to develop. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of work, um, but it becomes a superpower for leaders, especially during times of real change and sort of collective uh, challenges like the burnout put in front of many of us. It's so interesting to me how often empathy comes up in conversations on the show of 
addressing so many challenges in organizations. And it's it really is, I mean, like you said, it's it's such a it's such a challenging thing to get better at, as much as I think we all realize it. And yet it just has so many implications for how we do a better job in our work and strategy and innovation and burnout and all these connections. And it really comes does come down to this 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 core principle, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, one of the things that when we we analyze the different types of curiosity, the one that we really need to be focusing on right now that drives empathy is that epistemic curiosity. It's the kind that just explores arts and sciences that connects our, us as humans. It drives innovation, and it actually creates this real you know pleasure state. And and we just anticipate this joy when we engage in it. And for so many of us right now, we're we're actually engaged in what is called perceptual curiosity. And that is just like trying to scratch an an intellectual itch, you know, like having CNN on the background or some, you know, sort of news cycle, just constantly trying to feed that need to have information. But when you think about that from an empathy standpoint, you have an authentic drive and desire to learn about people in the one part of the chapter around developing curious cultures, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Martha Bird, who is the chief anthropologist for uh, ADP. And what she shared with me is that you really, if you're a really good leader, you become what is called a professional eavesdropper. So, you know, you're checking in on what the languages that people are sharing with you. Are people repeatedly talking about being tired? Have they commented that they're really finding it difficult to make a decision about putting their mom in assisted living, for example, or it's very expensive to put their kids through school, or they're a single mom dealing with three kids alone in the middle of a pandemic, you know, homeschooling. These are the things that we have to listen for, these tiny bits of data that comes by being naturally curious. And that's why we have to practice that epistemic curiosity and stop focusing so much on just scratching that itch with all of this, you know, drive to read social media and the comments and the news cycle. That's not healthy for us. And we're spending way too much time there versus in the other part of our our curiosity state. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I highlighted that in the book because I had never heard that distinction of curiosity in those two different ways of, of the kind of the healthier curiosity versus that more passive. As you've thought about this and kind of observed and researched people doing this, have you seen any indicators that are helpful to people to know if they're leaning in on one versus the other that in real time might be helpful to just get a sense of like, am I I leaning in on the right kind of curiosity? I don't even know if I'm asking a clear question, but I'm just curious, like what's come up for you on that? You know, I think what I've I've learned is that we have, you know, negativity bias. We're pretty addicted to wanting to, you know, cure the error codes in our brains, especially when there's uncertainty, you know, and uncertainty makes us feel like, you know, it kind of, our brain starts going air, air, we need to fix this. I want to get certainty. I want to get answers. And what ends up happening is that we go seeking it in these ways that are unhealthy because that's just a natural part of our human behavior. So it actually takes work to focus on epistemic curiosity. So to do that, like that, that step is to actually take media diets is to actually get ourselves away from that type of easy, passive way of engaging curiosity. And we have to make 
you know, it, it institutionalized in our organizations and in our lives that, you know, right now we're not getting any time on our calendar to just be creative or have creative thinking or get flow. We're in this over collaborative, over looping environment. And now what we have with Zoom and these video conferencing distractions and all these other things that are happening, it's making us so that we cannot take time to practice epistemic curiosity. And then without that, then we can't actually be empathetic. So it is that we have to force this into our calendars, you know, taking two hours and putting a meeting for ourselves just to think and, you know, do the things in your life that drive hobbies and things that, you know, develop your happiness outside of work and making sure that they're prioritized. And because we're working these additional hours, sometimes, you know, globally, we're looking at about two to three more hours per day that we're working. We're losing that time. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And that's a global stat. And that's the problem is that we're not getting time to practice that epistemic curiosity, which is then reducing our ability to be empathetic. Uh, One of the things that I uh, thank you for all that, by the way, Uh, one of the things that I just found so helpful in reading through the book is just some some invitations on where to start because like you said we don't we don't have that 2 to 3 hours you know a day to add in more right uh, but we can take some small steps and you cite an, a Harvard business review article on uh, I think the title is The Surprising Power of Simply Asking Coworkers How They're Doing which I love that title <laughs> yes. and there's some really I think helpful and practical things in this that I, I think almost any of us could at least start with on one of them and one of the invitations is to be considerate of others. And the the message is to find out how people want to communicate, which is so important today. Tell me about that. You know, it, what you're saying is, is really interesting because, uh, and I love that article too. I mean, it's so brilliant. It, it's about looking in, in, and I mentioned this before, but in the small data, right? It's not about you know, what we've been doing for a long time, which I think is great is measurement. And we need to have measurement and we need to have large, you know, data sets and employee experience, you know, studies done inside of organizations. I love that. I love that we're getting even quarterly, you know, surveys out there for people to share, but there's so much that a direct manager can do, you know, and, and that is just by asking, you know, this is where consideration empathy come in you know, uh, these three questions, and I I make it so simple for managers to adopt this uh, new meeting. And so first of all, I say, you got to remove all of the (laughs) uh, useless meetings that we have, you know, pre pandemic, it was 55 million meetings we had per day on average, you know, and meanwhile, only about 30% of them were productive. So we do have to remove the old meetings that are uh, unhelpful, but we need to add this one meeting back in and it's, it's a non-work related meeting. It's 30 minutes. It should be in a, you know, small team, small group and ask first, how are you? You know, and I say, people are going to lie. They're going to say they're fine. There's this really great stat that we say that we're fine an average of 14 times a week and mean it only 19% of the time. Mm. So people are going to lie and tell you they're fine. We need to ask, are you really? And the way that we do that as managers is we ask these next two follow-up questions, which is, you know, name a high, name a low for the week. And everyone goes around, names their high, and then everyone goes around and names their low. And then we all discuss for, you know, 15 minutes or so, what can we do as peers and and as friends and as colleagues to make next week a little bit easier? Very simple conversations, but when you think about it and when we've done this intervention and, and measured it, 
What we find is that managers learn first, what are motivators for their employees? What are the highs? What if, you know, that person continually talks about, you know, going and doing woodworking or being at the cottage, or, you know, they love going to their kids' soccer games. These things that you see repeated show a pattern of someone's likes and preferences, and that helps you to motivate. And then when you hear the lows, it helps you be much more preventative. If someone has mentioned that they're just really tired or, you know, they've been really worn out or they're dealing with a personal problem at home, even if they don't share, you know that they need extra help. They need a little bit of a boost. They need a safe place where they can speak to someone if they need to. So, These, you know, just being considerate, just being mindful, just having conversations around non-work related topics as a group where you develop psychological safety. It's amazing what happens uh, around that, you know, relationship dynamic. And then leaders become more vulnerable. They create more connections. And then you start to see the productivity increase, the engagement increase, you know, all of those other measures that really matter to the bottom line start to improve. And again, it's, it's starting just with curiosity and consideration. Yeah, the thing that strikes me that's so powerful about this is the specificity of it, of asking for a high or a low. And I think you said it, Jennifer, a moment ago, like, we tend to think like we should ask people how they are, like a lot of us think to do that. But we have this sort of strange thing. I don't know if this is true other places, but at least in US culture, that if you ask someone, how are you? Like the default answer is, uh, good or fine. How are you? <laughs> like that. Right. That's just what everyone. Like it's almost odd if someone doesn't respond that way. And I don't know if that's true in in other places, but it's certainly true here. And it's such a generic question that we don't really respond to it in a way that's meaningful. But if you ask something that's a lot more specific on what's a high, what's a low, or one of the other pieces of advice I love in this chapter too is, you know, asking about a specific project. How's it going with this? How's it going on this thing you mentioned last week? Like gets people talking about something really specific and then you get a lot more data points than you would if you just asked a generic question. It's absolutely true. I mean, and the, and the thing is, is that when we, you know, create prescriptions, I think a lot of people, it makes it easier to operationalize preventing burnout. And that's been one of the key things that I've really wanted to drive within the book is, you know, I I know this is a a learning for a lot of people too. What is burnout? What what does it mean? But we need to have some solutions here. And, And what I've come to understand is that there's so many different tiny places that we can make changes that makes it so that we can just incrementally change things. But it requires really using empathy at the root. That is the that is going to to trigger the change. And and the thing is, is it's actually quite simple. You know, the strategies and the tactics that I provide in the book are really simple. It's just about choosing a few and getting started and not being so afraid of it being bigger than you can can fix. And I think that's where this, like I said, is the burnout definition is so nebulous and it's become a little bit more succinct. But because it's so big and everyone's so scared of it, things aren't getting done. And that's, you know, why I really love what you said is like, let's get specific, let's be intentional, let's start small. And then over time, we'll start to really see the effects. Yeah. And going back to empathy, it's driven by what people are saying versus just what we feel like people need. And there's been just so many examples in the last year or two of organizations really well-meaning, putting together like virtual 
coffee chats and virtual happy hours and all kinds of things that you know sometimes have worked really well, other times not. I've done some of them. And yet I think a lot of times we we get into a room or we talk to an HR person or we look on the internet and we see what other people are doing and we just we just start something or we start a program or we start an intervention or a solution. And we haven't taken the first step, which is just to say, what's a high this week? What's a low this week? Like like you said, and it, the answers are there. Like if we start there and then we listen really well, like a lot of times, like we may come to that virtual happy hour, right? Like that's what really people need, but we might hear something else entirely. I love that you're mentioning that because a lot of that is that leaders do have really great intentions and they're afraid to ask because they maybe that they you know have planned or have budget or this is what we've always done and this is what we're going to continue to do. But if anything that the pandemic has taught us is that you know pivoting is something that is going to be part of our lives and, and being able to be emotionally and you know mentally flexible is a key trait that most employees have learned to figure out because they've had to. And so asking, just asking what people want and then actioning it, that's how you really build trust. I mean, you like, you know, the holiday party, for example, and I include that this idea that, you know, everyone wants to gather for the holidays and have this big holiday party. And when you do the research, you find out that most people actually dread going to this big <laughs> event. And, so they, and there's a lot of people where it's very exclusive for those people because they are, you know, naturally uncomfortable in these large groups. And so, I mean, that's just one micro example, but there's a lot of things that we do that we think are really great. And, and I'm seeing it a lot inside of the pandemic, you know, this, this big declaration from companies saying things like, oh, I gave a week off to my burned out employees and, and are sort of looking for applause. And meanwhile, I think, have you addressed the reason why they're burning out? Because that week off is going to be only a Band-Aid to a problem that is, is obviously a big issue within your organization. Do they have to prep for five days before they leave to take that week off and then they come back and there's catch-up? Have we reduced workload? Have we changed goals? I mean, all of those things led to the reason why they're taking that week off because they're so burned out. Again, it's like just truly really trying to get to the, the root of what people want. And then you'll find actually that some of the things that you've invested so much money in every year, that's not what people want. And the solve is actually less expensive and less of a time investment from people and will provide uh, you know so much more results when it comes to return and involvement from your uh, and inspiration from your from your team and your organization. There is the tendency for so many of us, I know I've been guilty of this, if, if, if we spent money on something or started a new program or a project or an event, we've done good. And certainly, like you said, the, the intention is good, but it doesn't necessarily mean the impact's good. And this gets to something else you warn about, which is confirmation bias, that we just, we tend to place greater emphasis on evidence that appears to confirm what we already believe, right? And I think that's where these questions are really powerful of just getting really specific on what can we do to take action. And I'm, I'm curious, as you have watched people who have done that, who have really stopped and asked some questions and just taken the time to listen and ask for those highs and lows, what's an example of an action that's come out of that that's been different, that's helped people move away from confirmation bias, that's actually been practical? You know, I, I give this really great example because it's actually based on an um, example of NASA after they went through their you know major challenger 
accident and um, their consultants. There was a really phenomenal consultancy group that came in and just really wanted to find out what was the problem. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that there weren't the right people at the table that needed to be able to provide information on safety and, you know, some of the other components that led to the crash, but also that when someone spoke up, they weren't being heard. And so they instituted this sort of black hat uh, way of uh, creating healthy dissent. And so I, I sort of leveled that up in the book and, and said, we need to have, you know, an RBG black robe of dissent meeting once a month where, or once every quarter, even where we give someone that ability that might not feel comfortable to dissent and wear the black hat and be the opposing person on a conversation about a new idea or a product or, you know, whatever it is, a new program that we're running. And it gives that ability inside the organization for everyone to feel like being heard is uh, not just accepted, but it's celebrated. You look at Google's Aristotle, you know, data where they looked at the top performing teams and there was two sort of big takeaways. And one of them was just emotional sensitivity, which is essentially empathy. And they thought originally, I have to go backtrack here, but they thought originally it would be, you know, skills, education, IQ, you know, all of these things that would have led to the highest performing teams, but it was actually emotional sensitivity. So empathy and turn-taking in meetings. And that's the thing, like, it's just, it's so simple, right? You know, give people a turn to speak about what they need to, and they feel psychologically safe enough to speak up and have a place at the table. And what changed within NASA and, and why it's reduced so many accidents, and that's a life of de- or death situation, but the reason why it reduced so many accidents and um, errors was that they brought those people to the table and it created this environment where you can have a dissenting opinion and it's healthy and it's celebrated. So I think that's a big part of this whole conversation is not just empathy for each other, but the, the celebration of hearing people out And that's a good thing. Critical feedback and healthy feedback and healthy debate is actually really good in an environment that has a lot of trust and a lot of safety built in. And sometimes we think like if we hear that debate, if we hear that conflict, that that's a that's a poor indication of healthy teams and good leadership. And yet that conflict is always there. It's whether or not people feel comfortable saying it out loud. And when they do, often that's the time, that's the sign of a healthy team versus the conflict and conversations that are happening behind closed doors that aren't happening openly. And that's why I love this invitation to, you know, get people together to talk about the highs and the lows. And one of the other reminders that I love in this, and it's such a great place for teams to start, is to assume the best. And you use the example in the book that, you know, we've all sort of had this experience of grieving about something or 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 our loss and someone who's trying to awkwardly help us out but they're doing a really bad job of it and and it (laughs) just makes you angry and frustrated at them and you and i I know when this has happened to me like i just want to like direct my anger and my grief at them and yet like if i step back i realize like they're really trying to help. They're not doing a very good job, but they're really trying to help, and I try to assume the best. And I love these two lines you write in the book. If you don't know what to say, you should stick with, thank you for sharing this with me. I don't have any advice. I just want to listen and learn. What a powerful what a powerful few lines that is. 
You know, I think as I started writing about grief in the pandemic, but before that and and the impact of grief policies and how those need to change in order to prevent burnout. And then, of course, pandemic hit and there's been grief and pain and trauma that we've all felt collectively and some much worse than others. It felt like that even that that line that I had written several years before the pandemic was really even more relevant today. And I think one of the problems with discussing mental health at work and why managers are maybe not comfortable is that they're so worried that they're going to say the wrong thing. They're not, they're going to make it worse. They're going to be expected to handle something in crisis and, and that's going to negatively you know, impact that person. There's fear of liability. I mean, there's all these reasons why we shut down about these conversations at work. And that's really dangerous because when we can't talk about mental health or our, our stuff at work, it leads to burnout. And so the best thing that we can do is just create the space to say, I am not a mental health expert and I might not be able to you know, help you in the way that I really wish I could, but I do have places that I can show you or share with you so you can get access to that. But more than anything, you know, I just want to be able to be a person that you can trust that will listen and learn. And I think that the more that we can sort of create a couple sentences that make us feel more safe, then we'll be better support systems and allies and friends and peers and coworkers um, with others that are really suffering right now. And we don't need to solve every problem, do we? Like just taking the time to stop and listen is so big. I had, I was a few months ago, Jennifer, I was having a video conference with one of our academy groups. And we've got seven or eight leaders that are together with me that meet regularly. And someone started to tell a story about one of their employees that was out on mental health leave. And then that triggered someone else to tell a story about someone else that was out for stress-related reasons. And and every organization has a little different term for this, and every situation is a little different. But they were all under the umbrella of mental health, burnout, stress. And I don't know what made me think to ask it, but I, I was just curious, like, how many people here have employees who are out right now on on some sort of leave like this? And every single person raised their hand. And it really was so striking on just how present this challenge is right now in all of our organizations. And so I hope that folks, uh, you know, if you are running into this in your organization, and I bet you are with your team right now, I would really invite you to dive in on the book, The Burnout Epidemic, because there's so much more we're not even hitting on in this conversation. And Jennifer, you've done just a wonderful job of looking at the research and surfacing some of these real practical things for us to do. Before I let you go, I I have one last question for you. You know, Part of what we've been inviting people to do here today is think differently. And of course, the experts are always learning and growing too. I'm curious, as you have been doing this research over the last few years and with the pandemic and everything happening, what's something that you have changed your mind on? When I first started out really looking at this process, I was focused as you mentioned in the happiness council, and I was working on um, increasing happiness at work. My book was unlocking happiness at work. And I was a big sort of advocate for increasing that feeling at work or contentment at work. And what I started, we started to work on was technology to be able to measure and support it. And 
we reversed course around that and realized that there's about 20% of people that are really flourishing. And in the pandemic, that might be less in organizations. There's only about maybe 30% of people in the global workforce that are engaged at work. So I was only servicing this small group. And, and I started to understand that that toxic positivity, that desire to increase happiness can actually work against making people happy at work. And I really switched. I joke that I've gone from being the happiness expert to the unhappiness expert, but <laughs> what I, which is a little depressing. But what I've come to understand is that unless we have hygiene, we can't motivate. Mm. And, and unless we're dealing with chronic stress and burnout and these root causes of burnout, there's no way that we can achieve well-being. So the goal is still the same, is to help people increase their well-being at work. But it's realizing that just going after happiness is not the route. And, and it's really changed my mind. And, and specifically to getting people to understand that technology is a tool in the toolbox and it is not a silver bullet to solving for any of this, that we need to stop just putting out an app or giving, you know, somebody to measure and and have some sort of, you know, tool or technology that's going to fix it. It requires a lot of very nuanced approaches with a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox to to really accomplish preventing burnout. Jennifer Moss is the author of The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Jennifer, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much, Dave. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety with Amy Edmondson. In that conversation, Amy and I talked about how we can create safety within our organizations for people to be able to say what they need to say. And even if not within the entire organization, at least within your team, what you can do in order to create that path to make it easier for people to say what they need to say. Amy has been a leader in psychological safety for many years. In fact, she was recently uh, named by Thinkers 50 as the number one management thinker in the world, her perspective on episode 404. I'd also recommend episode 438, What to Do with Your Feelings. Lori Gottlieb was my guest on that episode. She is a leading therapist and voice in the space of mental health and how we can utilize those resources and also how feelings show up for us as leaders and, of course, inside our organization. Episode 438, a wonderful entry point for thinking about what you can do as a next step. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 488, Leadership Means You Go First. Keith Ferrazzi was my guest on that episode, the best-selling author of Never Eat Alone and many other leadership books. We talked Talked about, well, exactly that. Leadership means you go first. Of course, leaders do not exclusively own the responsibility for these conversations inside of an organization, but we do bear the responsibility, I think, for those conversations to start and to take the first step, episode 488, an invitation there as well. All of these conversations you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. This podcast has aired since 2011 weekly, and that's why I've made available on coachingforleaders.com a free membership so you can access the entire library, but more importantly, to be able to search by topic. So if you are looking for more resources on personal leadership or stress management or employee engagement, as uh, many of the topics Topics this episode will be filed under. There's tons more episodes that are there available for you, plus access to the entire 
resource area inside the free membership. One of those areas is the free audio courses. There are a number of them there available for you. One of them is how to create your personal vision. Perhaps you are thinking right now, I'd like to create a vision of what the future looks like and to get a sense of what two to three years should be for me in my own journey as a professional, as a leader, and also perhaps a bit on what that means for you and your team and your organization. That entire course is available inside of the free membership. Five lessons there. If you want to start there, like all of our Academy members do when they come into the Academy, how to create your personal vision, you can find at coachingforleaders.com. Just set up your free membership. You'll get access to all of the free audio courses, the weekly leadership guide, plus every other benefit inside of free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Michael Bungay-Stanier back to the show. He is has something new to share with us. It's a new book on how to begin something new. If you, like me, are always thinking about what's the next thing, how do I get started on something that might be a little hard for me, Michael is going to walk us through step-by-step how we can actually start on something that's important to us and new. Join me for that conversation with Michael next week, and I hope you have a great week. Take care.